Well, good morning. It's so good, again, to be in Sunday morning with everyone and worshiping Him. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning as part of our worship to dive into God's Word together, and we are in a passage regarding marriage, importance of marriage, the principles of marriage. So I encourage you, I welcome you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with me, and we'll read this passage together and dive in. It says, in verse 8, To the married and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. The rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, and how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for your instruction in a word regarding marriage, singleness, even those who have been divorced. And we know, Lord, that it is a tremendously a difficult topic and, and yet a pertinent topic because we simply don't talk about it enough, and yet we need this instruction. So we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us in this way and to let us know that your word, your principles are indeed good news, not restrictions, but good news for us if we follow your way of approaching the subject matter. We thank you, Lord. Convince us, convict us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People have great aspirations for love and marriage. In fact, countless songs have been written to reflect such hard attitude. And these are listed in no particular order, but might be songs that you know. There's Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, which says, My love, there's only you in my life. I won't sing. There is only thing that is bright. My first love, you are my very breath that I take. You are every step I make. And I, I want to share all my love with you. We're familiar with that song. There's always and forever by heat wave. There will always be sunshine when I look at you. It's something I can't explain, just the things that you do. And if you get lonely, phone me and take a second to give to me that magic you make. And then Celine Dion, because you love me, says these words. You were my strength when I was weak. You were the voice when I couldn't speak. You were my eyes when I couldn't see. You saw the best there was in me. Yep. What great aspirations for marriage, for great hopes, for love. However, the reality is that even though people fall in love and people get married because we see each other as our soulmates, for all the marriages that happen here in America, 
about 40 to 50% of the marriages end up in divorce. It's not something we expect. Nobody, when they get married, thought of the marriage to end up in divorce, and yet it happens. So a journal article I read this week tell us why. Here are some of the survey reasons why people get a divorce. One, too much arguing, too much fighting, too much conflict. Two, drug use, alcohol use, abuse, domestic violence. Three, just intolerable actions by one another. There are reasons for divorce. And when we look at Scripture, we know that these reasons are not absent from the declarations of the Bible. Even though we say there are reasons for divorce, the Bible actually had another term to call it, and they're called sin. See, sin is what makes us intolerable to another person. Sin is what makes the other person intolerable to us. We sin against each other. Sin is that hurtful words, hurtful action, that action which makes the other person feel ill will toward us. The action or that word that separates relationships, including relationships in marriage. Sin destroys us. And our God, the God who created us, is opposite of sin. He's everything that is not sin. He's holy. He's righteous. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, says this concerning the God who created us. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Our God is pure, our God's holy, and there is no sin in Him at all. So why is there sin in us? Why is there sin in humanity? Well, it's because we walked away from God. We're created by God to be holy as He's holy, but we walked away from Him. We invited sin into our lives. We invited selfish ambition, our selfish desires, our wants and fleshly desires instead of the desires of God, and because of that, we invite a sin, and this is where that hurtful word, that hurtful action comes from. It comes from a desire from our own flesh, a sinful desire to satisfy our own needs instead of being obedient toward the Lord and thereby caring for others. Our God is the holy and the righteous God, and because He did not create us to be in sin And because he is the holy and the righteous God, he will judge. He will judge sinners. And that judgment is eternity in hell. Our God, however, is not just a God of judgment, but he's also a God of love. So therefore, what he did is that he decided that he's going to restore us. Restore us here first physically and spiritually and eternally in heaven. And this is done through the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, all of our problems here on earth comes from the problem of sin. We have sin against each other. It's not just preferences. It's just sin. We have selfish wants, selfish needs, and we refuse to listen to the needs and the wants of others, and we break off relationships. It's sin. And our God, who is love, who is compassion, decided that he's going to deal with this problem of sin by sending his son Jesus to earth to be sin for us. Jesus came, he lived the perfect life which there is no sin. And he gave that perfect life to you and to me so that we can have his perfection. And he died on the cross to pay for the punishment that's due you and due me because God must judge sin. And he rose again from the dead to show us that there's eternal life in him if we follow him. We're restored to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We also are restored to the life which God called us to live. 
We see Jesus rose from the dead to show us what eternal life is like. And today, we get to live that eternal life. That eternal life begins today. We get to follow Jesus, live for him, both now, learning right now, and doing it perfectly in eternity. This is the promise of God. God's promising us that there is restoration in our lives, in everything, including this aspect of marriage, singleness, and for those of us who are separated in divorce. We're going to see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 through 16. Some of the principles which God's going to give to us regarding marriage, singleness, and those who are separated in divorce. If we follow this, we shall experience the blessings of God, starting now until we see the Lord again and forever in eternity. There are some principles we want to know here in this passage. And the first principle regarding marriage is this. Marriage, whether you're single or married, marriage, you need to know this, is for life. It's for life. It's permanent in God's eyes. We can see this in verse 8 through 11. To the married and to the widow, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they shall marry. What is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she shall remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband shall not divorce his wife. As we come to this passage, we've seen Paul giving some pertinent restrictions regarding marriage and sexuality, and this is something that we've been dealing with in the past a month and a half. It's something that Paul has been speaking about in the last chapter, including this one. The Corinthian church needed a lot of instruction in this area because the Corinthian church is a new church. As a new believer, when you come to know Christ, you may not know all the details God has for you regarding this area of marriage and singleness. You sort of just marry whoever it is that you like and choose your choice, and, and that is it. But Paul says that God actually has specific instructions for you regarding marriage and also regarding divorce. It's been five years that Paul planted this church, and the church needed a lot of instruction because this church is birthed in the area that function in a way that's outside of God's design. This church birthed in a city called Corinth, and the Corinth is a city of extreme promiscuity. It's a city of infidelity. It's a city that's busy. People can come in and out of the city all the time because of trade, and because they come in and out of the city all the time, it's a city of ports, two ports on either side, connecting the Asian Sea with the Ionian Sea. So people come in and through all the time, and if they want to commit a fair, they certainly can do so. And also in the Grecian culture, there wasn't necessarily a culture of monogamous marriage anyways. So people come to the city, they have an affair, they do that, the news will never reach home. Alongside with this, there's a temple offered to the goddess Aphrodite on top of the city on Acropolis. On the city, in that temple, there are thousand priests at work. These are religious prostitutes. People, when they offer their religious worship to the goddess Aphrodite, they can say, you know what, I'm going to go to this temple, I'm going to have a sexual relationship with these priestesses as an offering to the goddess Aphrodite, and then justify it as a religious worship. So the church going had a lot to learn about sexuality, about marriage, and certainly we saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, where an individual has his father's wife, his stepmother. It says this, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind not even tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. I mean, they cheated, but having your father's wife, that's something else. Your stepmother. And the church didn't do anything about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says this, you're arrogant, 
out you not rather to mourn? You're not even paying attention to this. You're thinking this is okay. But it's not. You need to mourn. You need to deal with it. So Paul began to instruct them on God's definition of sexuality and marriage. And we saw this even in the Bible in terms of God's definition. Being that, we're called to be with each other as husband and wife before we partake in that sexual relationship. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and that shall become one flesh. That sexual relationship that men and women have should be reserved within the setting of marriage. And when you do that, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, that her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always with her love. You can enjoy your wife. You can enjoy the intimate relationship with your spouse. It's a wonderful relationship which God has created. Take hold of that. So the Corinthian church had to learn this. However, before they learn this, they have to deal with all the sexual desires within them. If you don't know, if you're not sure how to channel your sexual desires for marriage, then your sexual desires are going to go everywhere. You're going to practice it however way that you want, and there's several ways which you can practice it. We saw them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, where Paul lists all the sins which they were doing prior to their salvation. Saying this, do you not know that an unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Paul says there are three categories of sin that you need to look at. Sexual immorality, these are, this is a broad category of sin. Any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage is sexual immorality. And then there's adultery. Adultery is a subset of sexual immorality. Namely, if you're married and you have sexual relationship outside of a marriage, then you just commit adultery. Or if you are having sexual relationship with another person who's married, you have also committed adultery because you're involved in the breakage of that marriage bond, that marriage covenant. And also there are men who practice homosexuality, men who are of the same gender or women with the same gender with other women having sexual relationship with each other. Paul says this is not God's design for you. God's design is seen clearly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, where it says the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Man is for woman and woman is for man. And this is it. It's God's design. And if we love the Lord, we're called to be obedient to his design. To seek to have relationship in a way that is heterosexual or to remain single. Both are options that are available before the Lord. Now we're called to do this. However, Paul says this later on in this chapter that you do have your desires. You do have your sexual desires. You do have a desire for intimacy. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? This is your choice, Paul says. He's going to give some practical advice, but these are not commands. He said you could be single or you could choose to be married, and being married is going to help you in that. However way you do this, it's up to you. But you need to know this. You need to know how to control your body in such a way that honors the Lord. This is what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 to 5. 
This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in a passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You are to control your body in such a way. You know your body best. You think that you could be single and be pure before God in this area of your life. You could keep your sexual desires in control to express them later on. If you do, if you do get married, wait. But if you cannot, pursue marriage. And there's a variety of ways you can pursue marriage. We talked about this last week. In the Church of Corinth, there's arranged marriages. We don't have arranged marriages today, but you could certainly arrange it yourself, pursue somebody, go online, online dating. There are a variety of different ways. Let the Lord lead you in that. But Paul says this, to avoid sexual immorality, each man, this is in singing 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, each man shall have his own wife, each woman her own husband. And then again, he said in verse 9, the passage we're hearing today, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says this, if God gives you opportunity, again, sometimes we're not in opportunity. I understand that. We talked about this last week. If God didn't give you opportunity, you can't force yourself to be married. Even marriage is something which God brings to you. It's a gift from the Lord. But if God gives you that opportunity, amen, if God gives you the opportunity, then embrace it. It's not a bad thing. You don't have to think, well, singleness is something I need to do because I'm serving God in all this way. I cannot be with this guy. I cannot be with this girl. God says, no, actually, care about yourself. Care about your bodies. Don't let your bodies fall into temptation. Choose this option of being married. It's a good option. It's better for you to marry than to be burning with passion. That's what Paul is saying. Don't let your sexual desires, which are things, which are desires which you should give thanks to God for, because that's what makes you a great husband or great wife. It's what God made you to have. Don't let these things become temptation for you. Seek to exercise them in the confines of marriage if God gives you the opportunity, only that you would marry someone in the Lord. That person has to be in the Lord. That person has to love Jesus like you love Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. If you choose to marry after your husband passes away, that person must be in the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We're to be yoked with believers. That is what marriage is all about. You're yoked with a person. So in that sense, Paul says, you could choose to be married, but understand the principle of marriage. He's not forcing you to be married. He says it's good for you to be single. So those of us who are single here today, you are doing God's will for your life as well. Because Paul said in verse 8, to that married, yeah. And to that, we can clip on, clap on that. To that married and to the widow, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. It's fine for you to be single. No pressure. You don't have to feel like you're second class in the church or whatever. You don't have to feel like, oh, I'm left out all the time. You don't have to feel that way. It's good. You can serve the Lord. You can be passionate about the causes of Christ. If God calls you to go and be a missionary somewhere, you can just say, I'm gone. I have freedom to go. It's easy that you could do so. If you're married, it's harder for you to make that commitment because you're thinking about your wife, you're thinking about your kids, where they're going to go to school. You're thinking about people's health, different kinds of things. You know, if you're married, you're, you, I mean, God's going to take care of you. You can still go, but being single, you just don't have that thing on the back of your mind. So it's good. But if you choose to get married, Paul says that there are some requirements I need you to know. That is marriage is for life. You don't get to go back being single because you want to be single. Oh, I tried marriage. It's not for me. So I'm going to go back. You can't. You're settled. 
Let's see in verse 10. To the Mary, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. You're settled. You're married. There's no going back. There's no thinking, oh, I, I, I thought the marriage is going to be like this. I thought it's going to be a, a wonderful thing, but it turns out that I really didn't like it. I'd rather be where I was before, so I'm going to divorce my wife, and I'm going to just go back being single again. God says, no, that is sin. Nor can you say, you know, I got married to this person, but I didn't know this other person liked me. Man, like I wish it was that person I got married, so I'm going to divorce this person, so I'm going to marry this other person who I feel like is more... Um, or with my personality, or I could talk to this person a little better, or this person is more attractive to me, so I'm going to divorce my wife and marry this person. No. No. You have to learn to love your husband. You have to learn to love your wife. That is it. This is God's calling for us. Ultimately, because marriage is not about us. It's about the Lord. Even though you sign papers with that particular individual, say, I'm committed to you, I'm married to you, you are actually making that commitment before God. See, God sees your marriage and counts you two as together. And if you're separate, you're not necessarily separate before God's eyes. We're going to talk about this later. Because marriage itself is something that demonstrates God's love for the church. This is saying in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Where God says this, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God says this, marriage is not about you. It's not about you putting each other on pedestals. Say, oh, I'm so in love with you. Marriage actually is a demonstration of the gospel of Christ itself. When God says, I love you. I love you as a church. I sacrifice you as I care for you. Let my, uh, let my life be poured out for you. To the church, that is. That is what marriage is all about. Your marriage is a shadow of God's love for us. And because God's love for the church, amen, is permanent, right? You don't ever imagine, oh, if I sin against God in this way, God doesn't love me anymore. God's going to abandon me. God says, no, I love you. I'm faithful to you. I will be there for you no matter what kind of sin you sin in your life. So is such a way of your earthly marriage as well. Marriage is to be permanent in such design. Now, as we think about this, many of us, the reality is that we have not been instructed in this, right? You know, we get saved, and we go to church, and the church never talks about this. This is like probably one of the few times within the church you ever hear about this being preached. So you go and think, oh, there's an attractive young man who wants to ask me out. He's really, really nice, so I'm going to receive that and get married to him. He's not a believer. Or attractive young lady that I can pursue, and I get married to her. She's really nice. She's not a believer. What do you do? What do you do? And sometimes you think about, well, what if I'm, I'm married to this person, but in the past I was married, but then I was divorced. What do I do now? So Paul says this. This is actually not part of God's design. So the reason why it's complicated is not because God made it complicated. It's because we made it complicated. Do you understand that? So don't blame God when you don't understand how to deal with your issue. Okay, don't blame God. It's because we made it complicated. We made it complicated. But God's going to offer some advice and some helpful suggestions and some commands for you. Verse 11. Actually, read from verse 10 to verse 11. To the Mary I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But, okay, here it is. You're not supposed to, and it's a sin if you do. But if you do, if she does, she shall remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. God says this. There's an option, there are two options for you, okay? Just, he's, God's being very, very helpful. He understands that we're sinners. So if you sin this step, you divorce 
your husband, your wife, under a clause, which is not biblical. There are certain conditions for divorce that are biblical. We'll talk about this. But under this, it's talking about when you're divorcing someone simply because you just don't like the person anymore for other reasons, other than the biblical reason. If you're divorced, you have two options. Number one, remain single. Okay, you don't want to get back to that spouse? Remain single. That's fine. Or another option, be reconciled to your spouse because you sin against your spouse. You sin against your spouse because you divorce your spouse under conditions that are not biblical. Just because you don't like the person or because, you know, she burned your dinner or he burned your dinner, whatever it is. It's not the right reason for divorce. So you can apologize and reconcile if the person desires to reconcile with you or remain unmarried and single. The reason why this is happening, the reason why this needs to be the case is because even though we might be separated in the eyes of men, you go to the city hall, you sign a piece of divorce paper, you're separated. In God's eyes, you are still married because God has never condoned that divorce. God condoned the marriage. God says, yes, you are married when you guys got married, but God did not condone the divorce. And so because God did not condone the divorce, given that it was not under the biblical conditions, which I'll list later, you two are still married. And if you remarry somebody, you are committing adultery in God's eyes. Even though on paper, you're divorced, you're single, in God's eyes, you're still married. So if you commit, or if you marry another person, you commit adultery. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another, what? Commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus is very clear. If you divorce your wife, and this is talking about unbiblical grounds, you divorce your wife and marries another person, you are committing adultery in God's eyes because you're still married to your previous spouse. And if you are married to a person who is divorced under unbiblical condition, you are marrying somebody who is an adulterer. So you yourself are committing adultery because God's desire is for that person to be reconciled to his previous spouse. And you step in the way of God's work in that person's life. So that is why you need to check the history of the person that you are pursuing. You need to. You say, wow, this is really harsh. I need to check the history. I need to ask them with a hard question. Yes. Yes, you do. You do. Because that person has the responsibility. If the person is not single because God's reasons for singleness, that person is still married, and you're stepping away of that person's restoration, doing the right thing before the Lord. So you check. You say, how do I check? Ask questions. Ask the pastor to help you. Don't just go and get married without, like, the body of Christ coming around you and asking, hey, how's this person? How do you know this person? How, how, what's the history? What is he like? Was he previously married? You know, ask these tough questions so that you can make sure that you're stepping in God's way in this area of your life. Now, we must talk about the conditions now. Conditions for divorce. There are conditions for divorce. And if you're divorced under these certain conditions, you are allowed for remarriage. Because a biblical divorce means that you have been put back into a state of singleness in God's eyes, so therefore you are allowed to remarry. First condition is this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Sexual immorality. If there's sexual immorality committed against you from your spouse, you are allowed to divorce and remarry. Matthew chapter 9, verse 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus says this. People ask Jesus the question, under which condition can we divorce? Jesus says, you know, 
you should not be divorcing. First of all, what God's put together, not not men put together, uh, not not men put asunder, or not not men separate. But in this condition of sexual immorality, except for sexual immorality, if you have this, if there's a sin in this area, if your spouse sins against you, and sexual immorality in a marriage setting is adultery, because any kind of sexual immorality is a is a is is a breaking of uh, your marriage commitment. So adultery, adultery of heart, adultery in the mind, whatever it is, whatever you can't stand, you have grounds for divorce and remarriage. That's condition number one. Condition number two, if your spouse leaves you, if the unbelieving spouse leaves you, this, thing, this is actually seeing verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. If your unbelieving spouse says, I don't want to live with you anymore, and there are a variety of reasons how this happens. Maybe because you didn't know that you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever, you're a believer, and now your life's beginning to get transformed, and you're growing in Christ, and the other person thinks, you know what, I don't really want to have this person in my life anymore because the person kind of reminds me how sinful I am. So what do, you, what do they do? They leave you. If they leave you, God says, let it be so. Let it leave. Let it leave. In this case, you're not at fault. The person's divorced from you. You're back in the state of singleness. You could remarry. And the third condition of remarriage is very clear, and we all know this to be true. If your husband passes away or if your wife passes away, you're not bound to your spouse anymore. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be remarried to whom she wishes. So if your husband passes away, you also are free to remarry. Now, these are not commands to divorce or commands to remarry. Not. You can remain as you are if the Lord leads you to. Your spouse passes away. Your spouse leaves you. Unbelieving spouse, that is. You don't have to get remarried. You can remain single if the Lord calls you to. Actually, Paul says this in Matthew, uh, actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 to 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that too, I have the Spirit of God. It's fine for you to be single. It's fine. You've been divorced under a condition that is not biblical. Be single. It's happy, happy for you to do so. God, Paul says it's fine. You're, you're in the Lord. And if you've been married and now you're in a marriage situation where you didn't know that this person was previously married in a way and she wasn't, he wasn't divorced biblically, so now in this situation, stay married. Be as you are. So Paul says later on, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, do not seek to be single. Let your marriage glorify God the way that you do it right now. Because even that is covered by the blood of Christ as well. Just seek to sin no more. Now, if you have a person who sinned against you, in sexual immorality. That does not mean that you have divorced that person either. I would never ever as a pastor counsel someone to divorce, no matter how sinful the other person is. I wouldn't because I know what God's will is. Now, we could divorce. You could divorce. That would be you and you certainly because of what you need to deal with in your life and certainly that is fine. But Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6, when people asked him, how can there be such a permanent condition of marriage? 
Jesus said this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. God said this as the answer to why is there no divorce? And then the Pharisees began to pressure Jesus and said, what about the law of Moses? And Jesus said, yes, there is that. There is a condition. But in the beginning, it was not so. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7 through 8. They said to him, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But in the beginning, it was not so. God has never, ever designed marriage with divorce in mind. Never. It's because of our sin. We mess it up. And now God says, okay, because you mess it up, because of this heinous sin, you don't want to have to deal with this problem with a person sleeping around and, and being this, 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 uh, this, this uh, just dirty, having this sexual immorality and come back home and sleeping, you know, just, just being with you in an intimate way. Just like, that's why God allowed it. But in the beginning, it was not so. It was not so. It was never, ever God's intent for divorce to happen as an option in the very creative order of marriage. So that's something we need to consider. You know, I had a friend of mine, and I would never, ever counsel someone to do this. But she did it, and it was a wonderful thing she did. I had a friend of mine who, both of my friends, actually, back in UCLA when I used to go to college, and she was a, a young lady, and he was a young man, and we, he was, they were younger than me, but we went to seminary together, the husband, that is. And he became a pastor of a church. They got married, and this is Northern California. What happened was that this man, for some reason, whether there's too much pressure in ministry or whatever, right, and he knows no excuses for this, but he slept with the secretary, cheated on his wife. And the secretary was in a small group of his wife. It's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. He never repented, left the church, ran away, did not receive any, wanted to receive any counsel or discipline from the church. Just angry and upset and bitter. But you know what? She did not file a divorce. Not yet. I'm not saying she couldn't, but she didn't. And she still comes over and see the kids, and they're separated. They're not living together because, you know, there need to be some healing that needed to happen. But she did not file a divorce. And I don't know if she will file a divorce, but I'm thinking through this, like, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in the person's heart, right? There is a permanency to marriage. And I've seen people, I'm not saying this will happen, but I'm seeing people who work through these things and come back together. And that actually does honor and glorify God as well. I think about the story of Hosea. Hosea was a man who was married to Gomer. And Gomer was who? She was a prostitute. Now, they were married, right? And she left him, and she went to have relationship with other men. And that sin drew her to a point where she just becoming down, down, down. She finally, she was on the blocks being sold as a prostitute. And God said to Hosea, I need you to go there, and you should buy her back. I need you to outbid all the other builders, buy her, and tell her that you're for her, and she's for you. Why? Because this is my love for Israel. This is my love for God's people. We're the ones who commit harlotry. We're the ones who sin against God in adulterous kind of ways, right? Because we worship all kinds of things in our lives. And God continues to forgive us, continues to give us second chance, continues to say to us, you're for me and I am for you. This is what marriage is. 
Because marriage is to demonstrate the love of Christ for us as a church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, 27, we see this again. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is not holy. The church is not without blemish, but because Christ's love for us, the church is. And so in marriage setting, we're called to what? Imitate the love of Christ. It's hard. It's sacrificial. It's a high calling. With the conditions with divorce, yes, you could divorce. But then we think about the image of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, the permanency of marriage, and God's love for us. It takes us back and think, you know what? What is marriage all about? Today, we have to remember God's design for marriage is this. Marriage is to be permanent. It's to be permanent. It's for life. That is the first principle. God designed marriage for life. The second principle is this. God also designed marriage to display the very gospel itself. God designed marriage to display the gospel. We see this in verse 12 to 16. To the rest... I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God calls you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's a display of the gospel between two people. One person is not a believer. One person is a believer. So now we talked about so far the sanctity of marriage between two people who are believers. You do treat marriage as a permanent thing. But what about the fact that if there are unbelievers in a marriage, whether it's a mixed marriage, can I just leave my spouse? Because I see that it's actually good for me to be able to practice Ephesians 5 to a degree where, you know, I can love my spouse as, spouse love, as, I, uh, as, uh, as Christ loves the church and my spouse loves me as the church loves Christ. I want that fullness of blessing in Christ. Well, you are called to have that. However, now you are in a state in which you're married to an unbeliever. How do we go about that? You know, sometimes you are married to an unbeliever because you did not know. So certainly that could happen. Or you got saved, but your friend or your, not friend, your spouse is not saved. That can happen. What are the instructions of God? Does the permanency of marriage still apply? The answer is absolutely yes. We see in verse 12. To the rest I say, not I, or I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And also verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, or he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. If your spouse consents to live with you, do not seek a divorce because God may use it to bring your spouse to the Lord. The permanency of marriage still applies. God's image, God's uh, purpose in marriage applies to all of us, whether you're married as believers, married as believer, unbeliever, or two unbelievers who are married. God's design for marriage is the fact that God loves the church, and church is to love God, is to be permanent. However, if you're married to someone who's an unbeliever, there's a particular 
benefit to it to those who are unbelievers, namely that they get to enjoy the benefits of being in a sanctified marriage. We see this in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Here is the sanctifying effect. When you are married to somebody and you are a believer, they're looking at you and they're wondering what they can or cannot do, what they should or should not do because of your influence. We see this all the time. You know, my mama's not going to like this if I do this, so I better not do it. My spouse is not going to like this if I do this. I better not do it. My grandma's going to not like this. I better not do it. It's a good thing. Because God actually restrains your family from judgment because of your presence within that family, bring holiness to the family. This is not talking about the person being saved simply because they're family members. No. You still have to make your decision for Jesus. Everybody has to make a decision in order to be saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 25 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So everybody has to make a decision for Jesus in order to be saved. However, just because of the fact that they're in the family, they're giving more and more opportunities to see the glory of God in that family and thereby extending opportunity for believing in Jesus and also delaying God's judgment in their lives simply because of your presence. I think about Abraham a lot. It's a perfect example. See, God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to go and destroy Sodom. Abraham's kind of sad about it because Lot is there. So what did Abraham say to God? He said to God, you know, God, um, what if there are 50 people, 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, we still destroy it? God says, you know, if there are 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I would not destroy it. What about there are 45? God says, well, 45 will be not destroyed. 40? Not for 40. 30? Even 30? If there are righteous 30 people in the city of Sodom, I would not destroy it. How about 20? Nope. How about 10? Nope. And God left because there were not even 10. There were four people that were rescued. And one of them didn't make it, Lot's wife. Only three people made it. And God rescued them out and destroyed Sodom. But they were a sanctifying effect to the city of Sodom. God's delaying his judgment because of righteous people who are in it. So in that sense, God says, stay within your marriage. You do not know what God's choosing for you to do. Verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Stay within that marriage and let God work through it. Let the tension be in your marriage so that your husband or your wife is thinking about Jesus because of you. And that tension is hard to bear at times, right? Because you want to please your spouse. You want to please your husband. You want to please your wife. But you choose not to because you have to please God first. And your husband and your wife is now thinking, what are you doing or what have you become? And they're investigating Christ Jesus because of the presence with you. Otherwise, they wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus. You think about Lee Strobel, the author of Case for Christ. He was an unbeliever, a journalist. You could read that book and, and you, think of, you could think about all the reasons why he came to Jesus. Because his wife, his wife came to know the Lord. She began to go to church, began to love this person called Jesus. He got jealous. I, I married you. I thought that I'm going to put you on a pedestal. You're going to put me on the pedestal. We're going to be in love with each other like this. But now you actually love Jesus more than you love me. I cannot take it. So what I'm going to do, I don't want to leave you, 
but I'm going to investigate who Jesus is. I'm going to show you that Jesus is not God. I'm going to show you that Jesus did not come to resurrect from the dead. You know what he found? He found that Jesus did resurrect from the dead, and he became a believer because his wife. The same thing with Sabina and Rachel Warmbrand, right? We saw the movie. She was not a believer, and she was in this utter struggle, utter turmoil, because now her husband has turned to someone else, and she still loves him, and she has to find out. What is it that he believes in so that he can act, so they could be in this marriage together? She loves him. So God says, utilize that. Let that be a tool for God to use in you, in your marriage, so that the unbelieving spouse can be turned to Jesus. They require for us to believe in God, to obey God rather than obeying men. See, some of us have these marriages which just want to kind of please our spouse. You don't have to. You don't have to. You can speak truth to your spouse. You can be who you are to be Jesus first. You need to obey Jesus before you obey your unbelieving spouse, thereby bring attention to your life and therefore let your spouse make a decision for Jesus. They have to. They're going to leave you or they're going to have to believe or they have to live with you and just kind of figure this out on their own, in their own timing. First, uh, Peter said this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. This is the hard attitude of those who are believers in that marriage where we're, we're married to an unbeliever. We must obey God rather than men. Now, Peter is saying to the Sanhedrin, but the principle applies. We must obey God rather than men. You must obey God first. And your spouse looking at you and saying, you must obey God first. What about me? What about my wants? What about my needs? What if I want you to do this with me? And you say, no, that's sin. I can't do it. Now, you're not going to do this in an arrogant way. You're not going to look down your spouse. You're going to do this in a gentle way. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 2 says this, Wives, likewise, be subject to your own husbands, so that if some do not obey the word, they be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So you have this gentle and pure and respectable behavior with your spouse who is not a believer and your spouse is won over. Doesn't mean that you go with what your spouse says, everything they say, especially the, the sinful things, but you're respectfully toward them in a sense of, telling them that Jesus is first in your, in your life. The same thing goes with the husband. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we're to live with our wives in an understanding way. We're to live, our, live with our wives in an understanding way, cherishing them, caring for them, but at the same time, do not go into the sinful things which they go into. In such a way, bring tension to our marriage, and it's a good tension. It's a good tension because they need to know that things are not okay with you being married in such a way that they're not believers of the Lord, especially when they're plunging themselves into sin and you refuse to participate in that. So you speak bravely without fear of the gospel to your spouse who is an unbeliever. We see this attitude in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything. That is frightening. You're not fearful of your husband. You're not fearful of your wife who is not a believer. You're not fearful of the fact they might leave you. You can't control that anyways. But you need to live your life for the Lord to the fullest and let them decide what they're going to do with Jesus. This is the best gift that you can give to them. The best gift that you give to them is the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let your marriage be such a way which it's a waste, but let your marriage be a display of the gospel to your unbelieving spouse. If you are married, then both of you can do that. This is seen clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, 26. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You're to live in such a way to love your wives. 
Love them, care for them. This is display of the gospel. At the same time, the wives is to submit to their own husband. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, 26. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So you love your husband. You're displaying Christ's uh, church love to Christ. Your husband loves your wives, and you're displaying Christ's love for the church is a gospel message in your, in your marriage itself. So we see this clearly. God has gifted us with marriage. Marriage is a gift from God. It's meant to be permanent. It's meant to be lifelong. It's also meant to be a display of the gospel to the unbelieving world. Now today we talk a lot about marriage. We also talk a lot about singleness later on. The rest of the passage in 1 Corinthians 7 singleness. So don't feel like you're going to be left out in that. It's a lot about singleness. But whether you're married or single today, the key is to celebrate the work that God's done in your life. Because you have the restoration of Jesus Christ in your life. God's forgiven you. God is giving you a chance to live in the way that which you live today. So do your life in such a way to the glory of God. I think about when people are long marriages and people who are married for a long time, they never ever regret long marriages. I go to weddings at times, and individuals, they stand up. I've never seen that game where there's a reception. People ask people to stand up, and those who are married say, hey, you guys stand up if you're married. And, and those who are married for 10 years, 20 years, you know, would you keep standing? 30 years, keep standing. 40 years, keep standing. Now you got two people left, right? How long, how long are you married? 55 years, and people clap, right? It's a long marriage. Good job. Something to be celebrated. But you know what? For those of us single, our lives are to be celebrated as well. We might not celebrate singleness because we don't think much of it, but God with us, there's so many people who are single in this world who are serving faithfully to the Lord, whose names are written in heaven, like Amy Carmichael, Gladys Allward, other people like Elizabeth Elliot who've been single for a majority part of her life, other widowers who are men in the mission field. They're single for a long time, faithfully serving God, and their lives also will be celebrated by God as well. So this message is for married, but also for single. We're to celebrate our lives before God as we're called to be faithful in the state which we are at. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 to 46 says this, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Whatever life that God's called you to, may you do it faithfully until the Lord comes. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this message. We know that we focus on marriage today, and, and Paul does, and we need to spend some time doing so. But we also know, Lord, that we can celebrate singleness. Those of us who are single, we can live our lives for the Lord to the fullest, honoring him with our lives, serving him, and certainly this great accolade in that as well. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts in such a way to remind us what we need to do next, what we shouldn't do, and how do we live our lives for the Lord in this area of our lives. We pray, Father, that as a church, we may call alongside each other and love one another in such a way. And we pray, Father, as a church, we may also present qualified men and women to be married to one another. That's what growing church is all about. We need to be growing our spiritual walk with the Lord. And if God calls us to marriage, we may find each other in a setting called the church. This is what we're meant to have here in the church. 
We thank you, Lord, for that blessing. We pray that you would walk with us in this area of our lives. Continue to show us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.